get it started. Oh, I'm ready. Oh. <laughs> I'm just going to talk like that. Every, every, every single answer. Okay, perfect. Question. Can you do Austrian accents <laughs> by chance? We've been struggling to mimic one of the team principals, actually. And yeah. our accents are <laughs> terrible. <not right> They're <laughs> cringe, really. But anyways. Hi, friends. Um, welcome to Get Checkered. It's with Shanika and Caitlin. Um, we are members of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown and community supported. Caitlin nails that every single time, and I forget every <laughs> single time. So glad that we have her here. <laughs> um, we have an interesting episode for you guys. Mm. Yeah, so we had a really great opportunity come up to use the Calgary International Film Festival's podcast booth, and we're one of a dozen of podcasts that have been asked to interview guests that are tied to the festival. This is amazing for me. As some of you know, maybe not all of you. I don't know how much we've talked about it, actually, on the podcast. Is my film background hidden, Caitlin? I don't know. You may have, like, very briefly (laughs) got into it on, like, episode one. But, I mean, go for it. Yeah, so quick background on me. I actually studied film at the University of Calgary, oh. ran a local film festival called the Marta Loop Justice Film Festival for mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. plus years, maybe three years. A very young executive director. I'm sure we can talk about the meltdown <laughs> and how much I've learned. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so when this opportunity came up, I jumped at it and Caitlin, of course, being the wonderful co-host and best friend, said, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> With that being said, we want to make sure that everyone knows that this episode of Get Checkered is recorded on site at the Calgary International Film Festival. Now, it's the 22nd year of SIF, and it brings the best of Alberta, Canadian, and world cinema to Calgary each fall. I would know this. I volunteered as a previewer for a few years for the doc series, so I can oh, attest to. Yeah. Oh. yeah. She's got quite a good history. <laughs> I love film. Uh, you can sign up for the SIF newsletter at www.sifcalgary.ca slash newsletter. I would also recommend doing that. There's always some sort of contest that no one else seems to enter. So between myself and some of my coworkers, we've snagged a lot of the free tickets, I'm just saying. Or you can follow Sif Calgary on all platforms to be sure you don't miss out on any of the exciting upcoming events. So, Caitlin, who do we have with us? You may have heard him a few so, times. Yes, we have a special guest with us for this episode. <laughs> um, Guy Lavely um, is with us. Um, yes, do you want to just introduce yes, yourself? You. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> like physically, we're talking to someone, you guys. We're, we're just going to do it like this. Yeah. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to have you here. And how would you give our listeners a little bit about your background and who you are and what you do at the festival before we dive into all the hard-hitting questions that okay. we have? Okay, wow. Well, that's, that's so my background uh, is quite varied. It'll actually make me sound even probably older than I am when I <laughs> if I go through the laundry. I actually, no, I spent um, probably, oh, a decade and a half in the music industry. Um, And then when it was really changing, um, I had always wanted to work in film and television. Uh, That was always my passion growing up as a kid. My very first job ever was in a movie theater, a beautiful, gigantic old movie theater in Winnipeg, which is where I grew up. And um, always had a a love for film and Mm -hmm. wanted to get involved. So anyway, once I I switched to that, I moved into um, kind of film and television production. And um, but I always like watched movies like daily yeah Uh, I have to say the last year and a half well really until the movie theaters reopened Mm -hmm. that kind of one year period during the pandemic when everything was shut down it's like the first time in my entire life 
since I was maybe, you know, six years old, that I, I wasn't going to, like, at least a movie a week or whatever. Oh, so wow. it was, yeah, it was really hard. That was, like, the hardest part of the pandemic for me was yeah. not being able to go to a movie theater. So, anyway, I got involved with film programming. So, I, I am one of the programmers here yeah. for the festival. Um, and what that means, what a programmer is with a film festival, is uh, with this particular festival, we have four programmers. Because mm-hmm. um, there's just so many... There's so many film submissions, so many different genres to choose from uh, that it's kind of parceled out um, so that uh, everyone has kind of their, can maybe bring their expertise to a certain area. So I program all the um, American narrative films, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly US indie stuff, independent stuff, um, and all the music themed films, uh, the music on screen series, which tends to be mainly documentaries, but Really, it can be anything that that has kind of a real solid music theme. And I've been doing that for six years with this festival. Um, I have also programmed and run a couple of other film festivals in a different market. And I've been doing that programming, I guess, for 15 years now. Wild. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and I also work in production. And uh, so it's, uh, I'm a man of many hats. (laughs) (laughs) And Um. little sleep. (laughs) (laughs) No one, we all have, we're all masked as we need to be here in Alberta right now, especially. But I have the biggest smile on my face because I definitely miss programming film festivals. It's something that all my friends that have studied film is just the best part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a question for you that's a little interesting. Yeah. But how do you approach programming? Meaning, what are you watching on? How do you take notes? Because I feel like each programmer has a specific way that things need to be done. One of my friends, she has to take handwritten notes. If it's on the computer, it just doesn't resonate well for her. Mm. So what's your combination or things that you need to have altogether? Uh, that's interesting because you know what's funny? In most other things in my life, I still do handwritten notes for yeah. stuff. I find it a lot easier to go back and like flip pages and look like at actually like a tactile yeah. thing. Um, with when I'm watching screeners and submissions, uh, I... I generally don't take any handwritten notes. What I'm really looking for is a few things. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm programming different series, so I'll try and kind of generalize what I'm looking for, no matter what the series is I'm programming for. But basically, um, I wanna see, well, especially, let's say, the, let's go with music films, okay? Yeah. I wanna see a, a story that I think I know everything there is to know about it. And then the film makes me think otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, for yeah. instance, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a real world example to make more sense of that. We're showing a film this year that I programmed called Aha the movie, mm-hmm. and everybody knows Aha from yeah. Take on Me because it was it's actually one of the biggest pop music singles of all time, one of the biggest selling singles of all time. So everybody thinks they know the story of Aha. And then you realize, well, mind you, like, what are they, a one-hit wonder? Like, what are they? And the film taught me that, no, actually, they've been around since the early 80s. Um, they don't like each other. <laughs> but outside of North America, they still tour and play, like, stadiums. That's how popular they are. A lot of bands from that era might still be touring, but they're, like, doing, like, the yeah. casino circuit or something, right? No, they're still massive. So they've they've... Can you continue to succeed almost in spite of themselves because they, <laughs> they've had a very, uh, uh, 
interesting relationship with each other right from day one. So I found that fascinating because it was it was a movie that I thought I knew what I was going to get going in, yeah. and I got something different. To me, that's the real key. And same with the U.S. Uh, indie films. So when I'm, I think when I'm just watching uh, a film, it, it's a couple things. Like, what's the feeling I get for it? Did it did it take me in a direction different than what I thought it was going to when mm-hmm. I first started watching? That to me is one of the big keys. Uh, you know, it's, there's an old saying that, the, you know, there's only like basically seven stories and we're just retelling them in different ways, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's, and, and, and a bit of that is true. There, yeah. There's a lot of, you know, you, you look at like a romantic comedy. There's, there's, okay, there's the rom-com genre. So what could you possibly do differently with it in this day and age? And it turns out there's lots of different things you can do with yeah. it given some creativity and, and new ways of looking at it. So when I'm looking at movies, it's like, it's kind of like, how do I, how do I feel in my gut? Um, how does it make me feel? Does it, does it, does it feel kind of different than, than just everything else I've seen? Um, the other huge key, and especially programming music films, is not just, the, in fact, if anyone were to ask me one bit of advice, if they were gonna get into film programming, yeah. Don't just program to your own taste. And I think it's very easy to fall into that trap. So, you know, if we, if I was programming music films only to my own taste, it's like all you'd be seeing is like movies about punk bands from the 80s. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's like there's more to it. Yeah. You know? So that's the real key. It's like put you. Put yourself in the mindset of an audience member that this movie is kind of made for Mm -hmm. and how would they be responding to it and if you're not even that target demographic for that type of music or that type of film and it's affecting you wow imagine if someone who was like already going in going like i'm the i'm the demo for this and it's like it's gonna blow you away so i think that's a real key that's kind of how i try and approach programming is not just programming for myself but programming for the audience yeah I actually think that's really important and that's uh, something I learned very quickly when I had my festival days is you need to look beyond yourself and think about mm-hmm. who else is going to see this and what it'll actually make them feel well I don't know if I could ever be a programmer but I'm <laughs> grateful <laughs> that you are so <laughs> open to seeing new stuff because like with festivals and with like all just movies in theaters, it's amazing. Um, like the range that you can go and see. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's like a topic you don't even know you like, and then you come out of there being like, "Oh, maybe I am interested yeah. in this." So. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, um, I have a question for you. Okay. Um, I may have an answer for okay. you. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not you sure yet. Hopefully. Um, what film changed your life? Oh. Yeah, and I know that this is kind of a tough question for people that watch a lot of movies. But I think it is fair <laughs> to ask yeah. someone that No, I think this one's actually kind of easy for me. I think it's um, John Carpenter's Halloween, the original really? 1978. I love that. Yeah. Um, he's my all-time favorite filmmaker. He's, I think, the filmmaker that proved to me that... Because, I'm a, well, I'm a horror movie fanatic. Okay? Like, I like fanatic. <laughs> but... Um, when I saw Halloween, it, I think it was one of the, fir- one of, not the first, but one of the first films, I think that 
that transcended the genre of horror movies. So people who looked down upon horror films realized the level of craft and talent that went into making that film. And uh, it was almost seen as legitimizing the genre. Uh, there's an interesting thing with John Carpenter. I did it when I was in film school, I did this huge essay on John Carpenter. And so in doing all the research, you know, it was fascinating because, you know, here he's known in North America as like the guy who made Halloween and The Fog and The Thing. Because The Thing would be the other movie that changed my life. Um, so it's two Carpenter films, you know, um, and, you know, Big Trouble in Little China and Christine. He's made all these genre films, really, and has been seen as a genre filmmaker. In France, he is seen as like an auteur filmmaker. He's, he's like very, very yeah. revered. Because if so you go cool. back and look at his work, he's a supremely talented filmmaker. He just chose to, to make films in a genre that had been looked down upon. Um, it's hard to, you know, if you see all the stuff that, you see all the, whole, especially genre stuff now that is massive, it's hard to think back to a time when it was really frowned upon. Um, you know, and then Halloween really is is known as, or credited in, in a lot of ways with kind of kickstarting this slasher movie genre, yeah. even though it's not entirely true because um, <laughs> it's really Black Christmas, a Canadian film from 1974 ah, cool. that started the slasher. Yeah, which has been remade twice terribly. <laughs> but so if you're ever going to see Black Christmas, see the 1974 <laughs> original because it's amazing and it is terrifying. Ah. And a lot of the a lot of the things you see in Halloween, you saw in Black Christmas. Uh, and I would argue that the real like exploitation slasher phase yeah. started with Friday the 13th. Yeah. Because it was a massive, because that. that was like the real gore one. Um, I guess you could say that's, I mean, I have a Jason tattoo, so nice. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I, but we're not going to talk about slasher movies for the next two hours. Um, <laughs> but really it was just, it was, I think seeing that, that, uh, that, a genre that was kind of frowned upon or looked upon as lesser than um, could have real serious filmmakers in it, and you can you can make a like you can make an incredible film. And who cares what genre it is? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Actually, I believe it or not, I don't know, Caitlin, if I told you this, but in university, I took a horror film class. Oh, did you? Because it was a requirement. Uh, if anyone knows me, you know <laughs> I get scared watching the trailers with these things. <laughs> Do you? But it, it opened my eyes completely to, I guess, everything that I was missing mm. by not having seen a lot of horror movies. Mm -hmm. And I actually do think we watched Halloween uh, throughout the, I don't know, four months of just like every single week. I it remember you told me about a Japanese horror film. Audition. That yeah. one. Oh my. <laughs> we had to watch that in school. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Audition. Have you seen it? Nope. No. I don't do well with horror movies. <laughs> no, oh, then you would not do well with audition. <laughs> it, yeah. I audition think that's is one, one of the most shocking. Yeah. Especially if you don't know anything about it going into it, which is the key. 100%. You have to not know where it's going because it does not go where you think it's going. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, audition is amazing, but it is so disturbing. And I think it taps into, at least in that horror film class, what actually scares people. So for me, audition scared me to no end. But then my, you know, friends and stuff, it didn't bother them. But then if we're watching Blair Witch Project, they're like right. shaking in the room because they don't like what they can't see. So it's interesting to see what people hmm. 
have as things that freak them out. Um, as someone that's worked in the festival circuit for mm -hmm. so long, what has changed about festivals and actually what has changed specifically about the Calgary International one? In what frame, in what time frame? I would say over the last five years, if you can. Especially uh, for well, it's good timing to ask that question because um, this festival in particular, well, I think what we've seen over the past five to 10 years, yeah. pre March 2020, okay? Okay. Yeah. What we've Fair. what we were seeing in the film festival world is um I mean, you look back 25 years and you knew about Sundance and yeah. you knew about Cannes and you knew about the Toronto International Film Festival, like you knew about TIFF. And there were a few other kind of smaller, more regional festivals. And that was kind of it. Yeah. Um and over the past two decades, there's been an explosion of film festivals of all different kinds. They're everywhere. Every city has them, and a lot of cities have multiple mm -hmm. film festivals. Um, and I think part of the reason, I've had a long-standing theory, particularly in the past five to ten years, that film festivals have become the new distribution system yeah. for independent films. Because the movie theaters... The mainstream movie theaters used to show independent films because studios used to release them. Now it's all tentpole pictures, you know. As they like, it's all a, like, if a Marvel movie oh, comes out at a movie. Cineplex <laughs> or some at a Multiplex. Sorry, if a if a new Marvel movie is coming out at a Multiplex that has say twelve screens, that Marvel movie is going to be playing on six of them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like. We have more screens than ever before, and yet we have much fewer films to choose from. So what's happened is um, the film festival circuit has become almost a new, it's what, if you went, go back to the 60s and 70s, that's what would happen with smaller independent films. They, they would play market by market, yeah. you know, a slower rollout. It wouldn't be a wide release of like 2,000 screens. They'd roll out from city to city to city. And that's kind of what you see now with the film festival circuit, is um, is these these smaller films, and not all smaller films. Like we have a bunch of big films as well, yeah. but they're all you know they can be considered art films or dramas or you know this and that. It, it's it's for for a lot of it, it's it is independent cinema, um, and there's no opportunity to see those in theaters for the most part. You know, you look at a city like Calgary, like the only art house left or independent cinema is the Globe, really, yeah. and Plaza is reopening Super now. Sad. So, but in a city of, you know, one and a half million people, like that's, you know, it's, it's criminal, <laughs> but it's like that in every city. It's not, yeah. it's not, um, just Calgary. The, the independent art house, you know, is, is really almost becoming a thing of the past. And there's so many streaming services now that that's the avenue people stay home. Yeah. Cause a lot of the people who are into like the indie films, maybe it's a little bit of an older demo. So it's like, oh, I can stay home and watch this. And I don't have to go out and get parking. And, you know, so there's a lot of reasons. Um, but when you go to the last five years, pre-pandemic, what I saw is um, the festival momentum, not just in Calgary, but on, like I usually go to TIFF every year. Yeah. I go to South by Southwest in Austin every year. So for like 12 years. I go to Hot Docs. And um, been to a few others, but what you see year after year 
or what you have been seeing is like larger audiences every year, mm-hmm. every year, including this one mm-hmm. with the Calgary International. I mean, I've been here for six years, and you know, the first three or four, first four years I was here, our attendance was going up every single year. Yeah. Up to 2019, when we had like a record-breaking number of people. And then 2020 obviously, obviously changed yeah. everything. And we thought it was only going to change it for 2020. But now going into this year, especially right now, because we're right back into like, you know, a fourth wave. And especially in Alberta, it's really bad right now. Yeah. People are still being really cautious. And everyone's kind of gotten used to these like hybrid versions of festivals where it's like, oh, I can stream some stuff at home or I can go. So that's been an absolute game changer. I think a lot of us thought it would be a game changer temporarily, but I think we're looking at a three to five year um, time span after this year, after 2021. I think we're, I think honestly, seeing what I've seen now over the past two years, I think we're looking at three to five years before things start to get back to like this feeling of of normal, like massive crowds, huge lineups, like everything. Well, I kind of want to piggyback on that. Yeah. Um, and with the streaming services, yeah. Um, everyone last year, pretty much, that's all we did. Right? I know. So everyone's so <laughs> used to it. So even in three to five years, um, I wonder if there's an opportunity for festivals to kind of like get on board with streaming services somehow and like show these independent films that way. Yeah, I think that's what is we're going to start to see. Um, the, the hard part of that is... Um, then it's make striking deals with the really streaming difficult. services. Yeah. And the other issue is you have to have a subscription then to that streaming service to be able to see the films yeah. at that festival. Um, now, that's not to say it can't be done though. I think you, you, you've hit on something there that, cause I think everyone now, I think last year, like in, in, in 2020, I think everyone was just kind of scrambling to try and put on some something, sort of an yeah, event. And a lot of people just canceled outright or postponed till this year, thinking like, well, wait till 2021 when everything's back to normal. And now we're realizing that things aren't back to normal and they're not really that close to being back to normal. So there's probably a, uh, uh, it's forcing everyone to rethink, I think, not just in this industry. Yeah. I think in so many industries, but I think in this one, it's just causing um, people to rethink. And then if there's going to be a hybrid or a, a, an online component, how can you really engage people to make it still feel that energy of an in-person event? I think that's the the hardest thing. We did, um, like I said, we've gone to South by Southwest every mm-hmm. year for a long time, and we do the film and the music part of it. So this year, they did the streaming, and we watched all, a bunch of the movies from home, which was fine, but when the music part of the festival started and we were watching these like live performances on TV at home, like it was just after one day we're like, we were done. Yeah. It's just it's not, a- I mean, music is even, I mean, you know, a thousand times even more. You need to be there live to experience it. Um, and just seeing a, a film at a festival, one of the reasons people have always asked me like, why, like what makes a film festival so special when I can mm-hmm. just go see it? you know, at the theater, let's say especially a bigger movie. Yeah. Well, 
when the filmmakers are there and maybe yeah. the cast is there, it's just a different feeling. It's a different energy in the room. You can feel it and it's exciting and people get into it and the filmmakers get excited and the actors get excited. It's just, it's a different vibe yeah, and it's a different movie going experience. Yeah, it just is. I was going to say, and I also think um, for people that love cinema, if you can, uh, what I'm thinking to is Parasite a few years ago mm-hmm. where it was just lined up with people that, of course that I knew and that love film, but then also just regular everyday people. Yeah. And just that energy of like, I'm seeing this before everyone else or I'm yes. seeing it and months down the line it's getting nominated for an Oscar yeah. and you're seeing this whole you know I have thoughts about the Oscars but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but for a mainstream audience member like that is something that's really exciting right to be involved in that energy to feel that excitement that comes from being with a crowd that's really into something too mm-hmm. that's something that I definitely when you hit the nail on the head too, I think that's one of the keys for people is like being the first yeah. I got to see it first you know that's that's something that is, I mean, as human beings, we like to be, you know, are, are you an early adopter to technology? Like, do you want to be the first to do everything? Yeah. It's no different than being like, I was the first, you know, um, I was the I was the person who saw that band when they played to 30 people, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? But it's true, right? There is something very comforting and exciting to rub in people's and faces. exciting, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you, do you think there's a difference between the taste of European filmgoers versus North American ones? Oh, you know, I think my first, um, my first response to that, I think with, if I didn't think it through, would be like, yes. Yeah. But I think that would be an incorrect statement. Yeah. And I guess it depends if you're talking mainstream cinema going or film festival. Yeah, film festival. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to film festival, no, because the world cinema, the international titles we bring into the festival every year, year after year after year after year, are among the biggest selling titles. And there's a huge appetite for international films, yeah. partly because they never do play theatrically here. That's true. Unless something like A Parasite that breaks through to the mainstream and does get a lot of play but the films like Parasite are few and far between mm-hmm. you know the ones that a foreign film with subtitles that gets a wide release and plays in a lot of movie theaters those are few and far between so there's there's films here that um, the, the international titles and I mean outside of North America titles yeah. are typically the ones that sell out the first here I know, and it's a pain to try and get to. <laughs> um, I think so. The next question we have for you, yeah, um, is that we believe um, definitely Shanika being the filmy she is. <laughs> yeah, um, like Alberta and Calgary can be the hub of film in Western Canada. Um, what makes Civ so special? Oh. I mean, it's kind of two different things for filmmaking or film going. I would say both. I mean, we know from the filmmaking angle what Alberta has to offer. Yeah. But I do think that film festival side isn't spoken as much as everything else that I've seen in the press. Right. About, hey, it's great that we have these amazing productions coming here, but 
look at these festivals that are showing these great pictures that are also yeah. like some Canadian cinema too. So um, I would say, of course, we know the filmmaking, but I'm curious to know about what makes SIF so special, um, specifically on the festival side. I think what makes uh, this festival, well, especially being located in Calgary, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of production that goes on here, the thing is there's a lot of production of like, um, like American productions coming to film here because of the tax credits or whatever. Uh, and there's, you know, series and, and, and things like that. There, there's, for the province of Alberta, definitely Calgary's more of the industry hub. Yeah. One of the things that SIF is really trying to build on, and that's really started with this year, actually, um, is, you know, this first opening weekend being industry week, mm-hmm. having the Ampias on the same weekend, having, yeah, um, you know, these, ind- these panels all weekend long. I think you're going to see that part grow a lot more once people are kind of starting to travel more. Yeah. We did it this year, I think, um, even knowing that, you know, like a lot of the panels, you've still had pan- uh, guest panelists on Zoom as opposed to being there in person. What you're going to see with the years to come, everybody will be here in person. And um, for the industry, with distributors and broadcasters and financers, as soon as the industry component gets big enough, that's when you start to see a festival grow in stature. Okay. You would think it would just be based on audiences and audience yeah. numbers, but it's <laughs> no. not. No. The reason that TIFF is TIFF is because it's where all the distributors are. It's where all the, the press gather. It's where all the studios send their big names, but... It's a, the networking conference part of TIFF is a massive driver. So you have the entire industry concentrated in one city over the course of a weekend or a week. That's what's made TIFF what TIFF is. Um, Sundance, how yeah, many, how many yeah. times every year you hear about the big sales at Sundance. Yeah. This film got a deal, that film got a deal. That That's kind of those those... Those move those festivals that you hear, you know, on that massive like first tier, it they all have a big industry or market aspect to them, mm-hmm. um, and I think with Calgary, I mean, unfortunately, with and I say this every Canadian film festival, including Vancouver, you know, which is a big city, yeah, or including Montreal, which is a big city, everybody unfortunately is a little bit under the shadow of TIFF because so much. Funding yeah. and grants and government funding goes to TIFF. They get a, and the distributors are so focused in on on TIFF. Sometimes at the expense of, it's like you know, like someone in Vancouver isn't going to Toronto for a film festival, you no. know, and someone in and and, and the, the tastes and the 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 markets are just so different, you know, from from place to place. So. I think the opportunity for Calgary and for the Calgary International Film Festival to really grow is increasing that industry aspect because we already have an industry base here and then it's getting guests to come here every year. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's really begun with this year. And I think that's the part of it you're going to see grow. Once that grows, the high profile films also come with it. Uh, my other question tied to the festival, mm-hmm. actually, which for specifically for the one that's running right now, what is your must-watch film 
um, that likely is probably sold out. So sorry. <laughs> to anyone no, probably not. <laughs> but what is your pick? Uh, mine are never the ones that are sold out. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Perfect. seriously, so my picks are like always the best. My, probably my must see. And I, th- I think there's another in cinema screening and I'm sure it's streaming online. Uh, is a music doc called We Are the Thousand. And the reason that's my must-see pick, and actually from people I've talked to that went to the first screening and absolutely loved it, Mm -hmm. I'm not alone in this assessment. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've all been so isolated and cooped up for the last 18 months. So We Are the Thousand is the story of this fellow in Italy in a fairly small... When I say a fairly small town, not a, not a town of like 100 people, but in a smaller town, uh, he's a musician and he loves the Foo Fighters. They're his favorite band. And all he wants is for the Foo Fighters to come and play his small town, which of course will never happen. So, so what, he tr- what he decides to do to try and bring attention to his town and see if maybe Dave Grohl will, will, <laughs> will hear is to gather a thousand musicians in a field to play a Foo Fighters song and then put it on YouTube and see if it goes viral. Nice. Amazing. So that's the setup for that. (laughs) And with the past year and a half of not seeing any live music and large gatherings, the sheer sense of joy that like emanates from every frame of this film is I think why it's, because I think it's exactly the movie that everybody needs right now. You cannot walk out of this movie in a bad mood. And I think that is what we all need right now, because everyone's kind of in a snarly mood. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And this will completely, I like no movie this year that I've seen this year put as much of a smile on my face or a tear in my eye. Everyone who sees it cries. I Everyone. think that, yeah, I was talking to a few friends now that, I, I don't know, seeing people in the States go to concerts and stuff, I was like, I, I think if I saw live music, I think I would be bawling. I know. <laughs> like, regardless of who the musician is, like, yeah. I think I would be crying. Yeah. So, get a bit of a taste of that, I guess, going to this movie. Yeah. So, that's exciting. that's definitely my, that's my pick. Uh, the other question I have that's a bit more focused on you, yeah. because I know working in the arts is all-consuming <laughs> at all times yeah when you're not watching some of the best films you've ever seen um what do you do for fun oh for fun yeah <laughs> um I don't, well honestly like i go to movies i think like, i love i go to movies and i go see bands like honestly yeah. and i hang out with my kids and we go see bands together <laughs> and we go see movies together so and we go to a lot of we go to uh, hockey games and my son plays hockey actually he's and he's 11 so that's probably one of the things for me is fun is just going you know hanging out at the rink and watching him play because yeah. he just has fun and we've made some friends with the other parents and so that's that's a really good time and just kind of hanging out in our backyard and barbecuing and having drinks and having friends over like I'm pretty low maintenance kind of a guy I'm <laughs> yeah. like pretty and pre-pandemic my wife and I love to travel yeah like yeah yeah, so um, hopefully we can get back to that at some point and You'll feel comfortable doing it. You'll have to see if you can visit it. that small town in Italy. No kidding, <laughs> right? <laughs> Find a way to get there, honestly. Why yeah, not? <laughs> it would be. It would be. We went to Iceland a few years ago, and 
talk, you know, you said like, what's the movie that changed your yeah. life? It's more like, what's the trip that tra- changed your life? It was Iceland. Yeah, for Iceland you? is amazing. Ah, Iceland's amazing. Yeah, it is so otherworldly. And my, well, my wife is she is Icelandic. She's like half Icelandic, so there's Icelandic heritage in our family, and it's like it's just it was phenomenal. It's yeah. on my bucket list. I was going to say, it's you. on my bucket yeah. list. Yeah, it's such a <laughs> cool place. Just waiting for things to not be what they are right now. Yeah, right? no kidding. Um, I want to bring it back to F1 a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. So um, because like our podcast is all about Formula One and motorsport, um, we're wondering, what is your favorite sports film, um, including documentary? Yeah, like. we decided to allow that. Okay. Allow. <laughs> 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 I, there's probably not a racing movie on the list. That's okay. That's, that's all right. But, you know, oops, sorry. Oh. That was me. That was my phone. <laughs> that's the only thing I, I'm like. Um, favorite sport. I can't pick just one, so I'm going to give you a list. Okay, we'll take a look. Like I appreciate it, yeah. My personal favorite sports movies. But if we wanted to actually bring it around to at least one film around cars. It would be Bullet. I, have I haven't heard Bullet. of it. You should see Bullet. 1967, <laughs> I think. Steve okay. McQueen. It's, so it's pretty dated now. Yeah. Um, and you've certainly now seen more spectacular car chases. <laughs> but you, if you put yourself back in the mindset of when this movie was made, it was the game changer for car chase movies mm-hmm and car chases on film forever. Bullet and the French Connection. Those are the two, those, that's your homework. See those two films and you'll see, but especially Bullet. Bullet is just cool. Steve McQueen was like the coolest actor at the time. Yeah. He was at the top of his game and the car chases and his, oh, and his car, his Mustang. <laughs> it's like, oh man. Nice. So it's like, yeah, so you, you should see Bullet. But, um, I'm, I'm going to actually give you a few sports movies to chew on, in no particular order. Okay. They're not alphabetical. They're not in order of like favorite to least favorite. But I think just to give people a few to choose from, also you want to cover different sports, and yeah, you want to have some true. dramas and some comedies. I think it's nice to have a mix. Yeah. Having said that, even though it's the first one on my list because it's the first one I thought of, and it might be the best sports movie ever made, <laughs> is Moneyball. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Moneyball's amazing. Have you seen it, Shady? Yeah. Okay, I haven't seen it. I will. Uh, You know, I always think, you know what makes a really great sports movie? Is if you see a movie about a sport that you don't follow or care about. Yeah, I agree with that. And the movie still completely sucks you in. And I'm not a baseball fanatic at all, but Moneyball is amazing. Slapshot, of course. Mm-hmm. I think you actually get your Canadian citizenship revoked Bye. if you, you don't include Slapshot on <laughs> in the list of best sports films ever made. Uh, Field of Dreams, the other best baseball movie ever made. It's corny. It's dated. Uh, Kevin Costner. Okay, You've never seen gonna... Field of Dreams? No, I've seen Field of Dreams. Oh I just God. needed a <laughs> reference. Yes. Um, moving on to football. American football. The Longest Yard. The original oh. from 1974, oh, okay. not, the, not the Adam Sandler. <laughs> okay, fair. Yeah, okay. I have to be very, very clear on that. And actually, you know what's funny? The Adam Sandler one isn't terrible, but the original is, really, is really awesome. Good. Yeah. Um, dodgeball, of course, Dodgeball. One of the funny little. Is that 
Oh. Oh yeah, one of the funniest movies you'll ever it's see. It's a more like recent one, right? Like yep. Even, okay. Exactly. Yeah, I, I wanted I've to throw it. a yeah, few yeah. more recent ones on the list. So Dodgeball for sure. Uh, Bend it like Beckham. Oh, that's a great one. That's Love. The, I was actually oh, listening to a podcast yeah. today about the Beckhams, and they talked about it so much. A so movie great. I wanted to go very recent, and this one's only like two years old, so a lot of people may not have seen it. Fighting with my family. Oh no, I haven't. Even True heard that. story about a uh, British wrestling family. It's produced by and has small co-starring role with The Rock. So it's like, I think that's how I got made because he yeah. knew about this story. Fighting with my family is fantastic. It's available streaming like everywhere right now. I highly recommend it. It's a comedy and a drama. It's really funny, but it's also like, it's just so great. Florence Pugh is the lead actress. Oh, oh she's great. In yeah. She yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> I had you at Florence Pugh. Yeah, nice. I know. And it was funny because I saw this after I saw Midsummer which yeah. is like one of my favorite horror movies of the last decade. And I'm like, oh, Florence Pugh, I like her. She was amazing in Midsummer. I'm going to yeah. watch this. It's so different, but it's like, yeah, it's a great movie. Interesting, okay. Caddyshack, of course, the greatest yeah. golf movie I've ever made. Uh, Miracle, the other, there's not a lot of great hockey movies ever made. Miracle is about the Miracle on Ice, uh, U.S. Miracle on yeah. Ice team. And even though it's about an American football oh, hockey, hockey team, team. <laughs> it's still really good. Um, much more dramatic. Foxcatcher with Steve Carell and um, Channing yeah. Tatum. Amazing yeah, movie. It's very good. Amazing. Yeah. True story. Bull Durham. Amazing how many baseball movies I have on this list, seeing as I don't really like baseball. <laughs> uh, and of course, the you could argue about the greatest boxing movie ever made, and I'm not a big boxing fan. Actually, I'm not even remotely a boxing fan. Yeah. And everyone would go to Rocky or one of the Rocky movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I still stick with Raging Bull. Oh, yeah. 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 You have to. You have to. I've never to. even heard of that one. Raging Bull? No. Oh, my god. I am not a filmy, but I learned a lot. There you go. <laughs> We've been friends for over 10 years, and I'm first to watch Raging Bull. Raging Bull is worth it just to watch it and go, oh, my God, Robert De Niro used to look like that? Yeah, like wow, it's, he it's was cut. Very <laughs> different Interesting. Robert yes. <laughs> Yeah. Raging Bull. So this is like the era of like the method actor. So, um, so... Uh, Robert De Niro, who was like probably in his early mm-hmm. 30s at the time, when they because it's from like 1980, he and he's a boxer right at the top of his game. It's a, it's a true story about the boxer Jake Jake LaMotta. So they shot the first whatever 80% of the film, and then they took six months or a year off so he could gain, I think it was 50 or 60 pounds to be the older Jake LaMotta when he's like washed up and everything. He didn't want a fat suit. He wanted to actually gain the hmm. weight. Okay. Yeah. That is what you call uh, method dedication to your craft. I mean, it's always fun like eating more food. I know. But getting rid of it is not. Yeah, that's no. not the fun part. No. You kind of touched on a few elements, but for you, what yeah. makes these films on your list? What makes these films great? The sports ones? The sports um, ones, yeah. I don't know, a variety of reasons. Uh, like with the comedies, it's because they're hilarious. <laughs> it's um, with the ones like like Moneyball or Bull Durham, it's about a sport that I don't really care about, but the movie transcended that. I think it's like I talked about with the music yeah. movies earlier. I think if you, can, if you can see a film on a topic that you don't even maybe necessarily care about and it totally draws you in, 
and it can transcend that genre, then I think that's what makes a really successful movie. You know, and then you can see, and when you can see them, I think also the ones that you can see over and over and over, yeah, and they still, you know, like I think every movie on that list I've seen multiple times, and I would watch any one of them again right now. I think that's a huge key to repeatability. Is there something as a non-filmy? <laughs> yeah. Is there something that like you can do when you're making a film that, like, you know, people will want to see it over and over again? Like, what can you do to do that? Or is it just kind of like... She's also an engineer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so she's like, where do we get the solution? <laughs> Pretty much. You know, it, it, that's actually a great question because I think it's the eternal question that every filmmaker has it's always kind of tried answer, to yeah. do and what they're always trying to achieve. And sometimes you end up, you know, with Raging Bull. Yeah. And sometimes you end up with The Room. <laughs> you know? I think, did I, I think I took you guys to a screening of The Room. Oh, right? yeah. And my, my grade 12 science teacher broke that out for us to watch <laughs> because he loved it. <laughs> so, I mean. But you know what's funny? You know what makes The Room work so well and why it's become this, like, big cult classic? is because the people making it, they weren't setting out to make a terrible cult film. Yeah. They were setting out to make a great movie. And they truly thought, Tommy Wiseau <laughs> thought he was making a great <laughs> film. That's what makes it so amazing in its terribleness because <laughs> they were trying for greatness and couldn't even realize how inept everything was. But it was done from the heart, right? So that yeah. comes through. Whereas I've seen so many movies that you know, they're, they're trying. It's like, oh, we're going to make a cult movie. It's like, but you can't. You can't try and make, you know, the next great bad movie. <laughs> it just has to happen <laughs> organically. <laughs> shoot for the moon and you land on a really random star over exactly. here. Yeah. Yeah, I guess with the room, that is that description. Yeah. They were really shooting for the moon and landed somewhere. Landed somewhere. Somewhere else. I'm not really sure, but it is a thing of beauty. <laughs> And if you haven't seen The Disaster Artist, you should, if you love The Room. Yeah. So The Disaster Artist it. is like the kind of the fictionalized, with Seth Rogen and uh, James Franco and stuff. And yeah, The Disaster Artist is great. It's hilarious. Nice. Okay. And they do it like um, when they're, I feel like it's so meta. When they're filming The Room. Yeah. It's like they nail it shot by shot. Oh, it's oh. crazy. It's, yeah. so it's wild. Yeah. yeah. So you can see them. I think at the end they do have. In the closing credits? Yeah. yeah and I was like, like. James Franco and then Tommy Wise. And it's just like, wow. And like how he, accurate they got everything, like every detail. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I never thought we'd like end this interview on the room. On the room, I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I like it though. There you go, <laughs> yeah. But thank you so much for doing this with us. No problem. It was fun. Um, this is really exciting. And to our listeners again, that especially the ones from Calgary, make sure you go to the Calgary International Film Festival and check out what Guy mentioned. Any other films? So I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. Well, What's the best then, like, Formula One or racing movie, car <laughs> racing movie that I should oh. see? <laughs> okay. I don't know if we even had the same ones. You want to go first? Okay. I loved Rush that came out a few years ago. Oh yeah, okay. With I didn't... Chris Hemsworth yes, and yes. Daniel Brühl, but for all the wrong reasons. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I just the hair is so 
it has to be bad, right? Because it's the era. It's bad hair. Yeah. But like you said, I think for someone that's coming out from one maybe doesn't know anything about the sport at all, it's a nice way to get into it. The yeah. The are great. The driving's great. And the hair is so bad that it's good. Um, and Daniel Brühl does a really great job. So for our listeners, they probably already know, but Daniel plays uh, Nikki Lauda, who's iconic in the sport, and, but is notorious for just being very much like one of a kind so he's like hard to emulate he's do just we, a very do we know what person. horoscope he is <laughs> <laughs> he, would, he would he would be a capricorn we talk about horoscopes <laughs> so maybe but he's very stern and very hard to play so seeing daniel kind of take that role is really interesting and then uh, it's chris hemsworth yeah as james james hunt james yeah. hunt and it's the wild aussie that's like here to take right. his title and of course chris hemsworth is already aussie so it's like this perfect blend um, but I also think it's sort of heartbreaking at the same time when you see, we talk about it a lot in our podcast, but just Formula One is such an expensive sport, but especially in the 80s, um, just how much people struggle to get right. in. Uh, and I love a good come up story. Mm, I think that's like something yeah. I really love, like good yeah. underdog story. Yeah. Um, but then also what happens afterwards, like Nikki Lauda, spoiler, not really, um, spoiler. has <laughs> a few built like <laughs> an amazing life, sold multiple airlines and stuff like that. And James Hunt really lost everything so how can you go from those amazing highs to a place where you quite literally have nothing is it's really interesting so that's one of my favorites caitlin what are you gonna say and like to be honest it's my favorite too but (laughs) but for different reasons that was the first well not the first film i saw with my mom but like my mom and i both really liked it and so like i just i don't know i see that film and i think of my mom so it's like really nice for that reason but also, like, watching Chris Hemsworth is never not a good time. No, it's never <laughs> so. not, really. I'm just going to say it. I would be hard-pressed to disagree with yeah. you. <laughs> and it's like, it's kind of what you said. It's interesting that this is a niche sport, but it, it kind of did get out to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of cool that it was able to, and it brought me kind of into the sport brought my mom into the sport i've met a whole bunch of other people that have never even heard of motorsport or yeah formula one in particular before um so like there's they've done it before i think they can do it again and to be honest with what you were saying i have an idea <laughs> for something yes they can do a really cool Pitch f1 them film they can break it to the festival films and like kind of they'll have to do europe it's huge in europe right but they can still bring it like over to North America yeah, where it's still an we, emerging market and everything. Have some like great producer over <laughs> in Europe and be like, you can go into this niche sport market um, with like great producer and create this mind blowing film yeah. and somehow make people want to watch it over and over. <laughs> there we go. There you go. That's um, the answer for yeah. someone. <laughs> and I will say, if you are looking for a documentary though, there's a, the Schumacher documentary that just came out on Netflix. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so anyone that has the streaming That service. just came out, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like really it recently. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Two ago, so I think that's also a good little... Yeah, I was reading about that. One. I've just been in festival mode, so I didn't it's see it, but that one I've been reading about. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it, he's like one of the greats, yeah. if not the great. Yeah. So, um, interesting note about Netflix, though, talking about streaming. Um, Formula One is wondering, like, Netflix might buy exclusive rights to a film. Um, like show the Formula One races, so that's really, that, yeah. yeah, it's super bizarre. We were trying to figure out what that would even mean because, yeah. like you're saying, that means that's a subscription. There's already great 
I don't know, broadcasters that are beloved that report on the sport. So if Netflix is showing interest, like what does that even mean? Wow. Well, Netflix forward? is basically trying to own the world. So we, I guess it, yeah. I know. <laughs> how do we make, I mean, I'm kind of curious, but I'm also like, how do we make them stop? Like, I don't know. You can't. <laughs> it's like Netflix, Amazon, and Disney, and like and they the rest of everything. us, everything. Exactly. Oh, it's devastating. Okay. Yeah. I apparently have to go intro a film now. Yes. Okay, well, I wanted to make sure that we. Yeah. Timing. 650. Yes. Thank you so much. Really Thank you. That was fun. To you. Yeah. Yeah, this was fun. Okay, friends. So, um, turns out Shanik and I had the same favorite <laughs> F1 film. So we didn't really, we didn't really talk about the other ones then, which we kind of felt bad about that. So um, we're going to just do a quick overview on some of the other F1 films, documentaries, um, shows out there, um, because why not? Exactly. And Caitlin's right. We hadn't even, we knew that question was going to probably come up in the interview. I didn't expect Guy to be the one to ask us it. (laughs) And I didn't expect us to have the same answer. So we brushed up on some movies too. We watched some last night uh, to figure out what we're doing and to give you a little bit of a rundown. But yeah, yeah. so we um we kind of broke them down into like what you could get on streaming services versus like the bigger movies that you could see in cinema. Um, so starting with what we could see on streaming, so whether that be like Netflix or Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. First movie we have down is Senna. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so Senna is available on Amazon Prime. So for anyone that just has a Prime subscription. Is it not on Netflix too? I mean, maybe. Right now it's saying it's on Prime. I thought I was on Netflix. Maybe it was taken off. But hey, that could happen. Yeah. Um, so it's, of course, about the incredible career of Arjun Senna, who is just so prolific in Formula One. He uh, was a three-time world champion. Four? Three, four? We should know this. <laughs> I think it's... Hold on. I have it up. Three. Three-time. <laughs> good. Um. Yeah, so three-time world champion, uh, but the documentary itself just covers his incredible life, how much of a prolific star he was in Brazil, which where he's from, and how obsessed everyone was with him. But then also, um, it does cover just the impact of his death, because as we all know, um, he passed away really tragically in an accident that in this episode, Caitlin and I have touched on once already, but that we're probably going to touch on was it this episode or was it the Schumacher episode that we talked about? It was the Schumacher episode. We have so many episodes, y'all, at this point. <laughs> um, but it's something that we're probably going to touch on a little bit later on this episode, too. But yeah, I it was the first Formula One movie I watched, actually, when we started up our podcast. Because I was like, I need to, I need to figure out what's out there. And the Senate documentary is really great, really heart-wrenching. But um, I really enjoyed it. When did you watch it, Caitlin? Um, I'm pretty sure I watched it just a few weeks after the Imola race this year, so 2021. And then it kind of hits you that like, oh, damn, <laughs> this was the circuit. Oh, my God. Lots of history there and not great history in that regard. Um, but no, it was a 
it was a very good film. I think this was the, so I saw um, Rush like years and years and years ago. And then we saw Drive to Survive, right? Um, and then Senna was the first film I watched after Drive to Survive. So it kind of introduced me to uh, like a different era of Formula One. Um, and everyone always talks about Senna. So, I mean, why not learn more about him? Um, I w- like Shanika and I were probably like four, five months old when he had his fatal crash. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So we were very young. We were obviously not watching <laughs> TV when that happened. Um, my parents were into F1. So, I mean, like this was my first exposure to Senna. Um, yeah, it, it was a very well done film. It was like, it was all done with TV snippets from the past, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, pretty much. It was all like news coverage and, yeah. you know, stuff and things like that. There was no actual interviews, I think, with his family, right? I don't recall that, no. Um, yeah, so it, it's it's an interesting kind of documentary in that regard. Um, like you're seeing everything as it was back then so um yeah no it's a very good movie yeah I enjoyed it so it's definitely on their on the list um you watched Life of Speed right by Juan with Life of Speed Juan Manuel Fangio hui hui I did <laughs> um, so this one was on Netflix mm-hmm. I'm already getting confused to streaming services this is bad but yes <laughs> um so it's another documentary about the life of this very prolific F1 driver. Um, Juan Manuel Fangio is known pretty much as like the godfather of racing. He was racing F1 back in the 50s, right when it started up. Mm-hmm. Um, Senna was Brazilian. Fangio was an Argentinian. So, I mean, very interesting that they're coming from South America, let's just say. Um, but how it differed from Senna will be that the Fangio documentary did have modern day interviews so okay um, yeah they were interviewing like Toto, Rosberg, Alonso, Mika Heikkinen, Jackie Stewart, Ellen Prost um we're all talking about how Fangio kind of impacted the sport um impacted their life if they got to meet him Mm -hmm. even if they didn't um what was really interesting was like there wasn't like even in Senna's age the cars were different than they are now but like back in the 50s and like even before when he was when F1 wasn't even a thing Fangio was racing and like the cars he was in was ridiculous like his stories about breaking down and like the amount of time mechanics had to take to like fix a car Mm -hmm. crazy um and like um what's I gonna say an interesting point I learned from the Fangio documentary is that he started F1 when he was like later 30s <laughs> so he was racing oh, wow. he was in his 40s like later mid later 40s so experience back then played a huge part it plays a part now for mm-hmm. sure but like now with the cars going as fast as they can um even Rosberg noted that like you need reaction time to be very very quick <laughs> and that's why I think we have so many younger kids nowadays right they're just so um, lightning fast <laughs> exactly so that's an interesting little thing like the evolution of the sport from when it started it was yeah not a lot of young people well there was young people but like obviously Fangio with his experience was the one winning titles he won four um mm-hmm. interestingly with four different manufacturers only guy ever to do that wow. <laughs> um he has the highest win percentage 
of the Grand Prix he entered, he was almost 50%. Jesus. Right? Like Lewis is like 36 or something percentage, which not bad. But, <laughs> yeah, but was, that was a really interesting point. Because um, like Schumacher really only won with Ferrari for the most part. And yeah. then we have Hamilton, right, with Mercedes. So um, it kind of begs the question. Everyone asks the question of like, who is the greatest of all time? Yeah. I don't think like how could you how could we even compare just the era? I don't think people are trying to compare. (laughs) People really try, and they're like, Fangio can win with four different car manufacturers versus like Schumacher Hamilton only really won with the one. But also, the cars differ so much now that yes, it'll be harder to win with a different manufacturer. Back then, if they were more similar, wouldn't you think that you could adapt a lot quicker? Maybe I don't know. I mean, we can't call it. We've never done this. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. He, the way Fangio, I guess, um, like was as a person, I think we would have got along with him really well. <laughs> he stuck his <laughs> ground. He knew what he wanted. So it's like, oh, you're a cool guy. So he passed away of old age in 1995. Okay. So it was kind of like, it wasn't a tragic ending, which is a nice, nice change. <laughs> Compared to, yeah, I know some of the other stories. Yeah. So the next one on our list, which we're not going to talk about because it's technically not about Formula One, right? But it's just yeah, about racing. We, we, we talk about another it's film a- of the same story later. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's related to racing is the 24-hour war, which I believe is about Le Mans, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's also something that you can catch on a streaming service. Which one at this point they're blurring together one of them. <laughs> look into having multiple streaming services. It's just, I think it's, it's, I don't know. Anyway, well, that's what the family packs are for. Just buy them with your friends. <laughs> or just moved off your parents until the end of time. Um, so I actually ended up watching the Williams documentary and I had a few notes about it. So it actually came out in 2017. So my guesstimate is that it was filmed in 2016, likely, just because studio times in Hollywood are way longer than Bollywood. So it would take about a year, if not longer. So it's like 2015, 2016 is probably when it was filmed. I think it was really exciting to see Claire, like our lovely, sweet Claire, the only, <laughs> seemingly the only woman in Formula One, it feels like. Um, and then also we did an episode on the Virgo babies, including Valtteri. So it was interesting where I think I mentioned in that episode, just Valtteri's career at Williams and then to see clips of him at Williams and actually how much speed he had at a time where Williams like was still struggling and was having a really, really horrible time. Um, what I found challenging is that the Williams team brand whatever has been a part of formula one forever so you they show you a lot of the old school accidents and it's like even though it's in black and white i think it's still kind of disturbing to there was one in particular where they just had like the car engulfed in flames and yeah they put it out but the guy's like body was like he was burned alive essentially in the car it was like super horrible and i'm like why are they showing this but i think it's to show just how far the cars have come from which is important um in this documentary though the art and senna accident was mentioned as well and you see it from this different perspective where um he was in a williams car 
and just how devastating it was for Frank and of course the whole team, but just him as the one that is running the Williams team to have that happen and how just really horrible it was for him. Um, but like I said, it, it speaks to just how Formula One has come because he was saying that when he was in Formula One and racing, it there was like four weekends back to back where their fellow drivers were dying and oh they'd be expected God. to like go to the next race without even thinking about it. Another thing that was interesting, which has constantly come up in our podcasts, and I think we need to reshoot that episode, but just finances. So you hear how much Williams has, which is pretty much 200 mil less than (laughs) Red Bull and um, Red Bull and Mercedes at that time. You know, obviously, we know the cost cap is coming in, which will help all that kind of stuff. And also that Frank had already at one point with the company had filed for bankruptcy or like was at a point where he was so broken was actually bought out then. So the issues with money and formula one and the Williams team has gone back for a while. So as much as I'm kind of annoyed, um, you know, to have a team be bought out by like, I think it's a VC or or something like that, um, that ended up buying into the Williams team. It, it sucks, but it's also a good thing because there's just way more financial stability but what sucks is that, you know, the one family owned team is now not family owned. Um, what I thought was really sad, though, is that the entire movie came to be because of the book that her mother wrote. Um, she wrote a book called like A Different Kind of Life or something. And it was just about her experience being, you know, married to Frank Williams as he's, you know, building this sort of empire and going through Formula One. And it's it's really sad like you you see Claire read portions of the book I think it's something that Caitlin and I should probably read to be honest because it's a perspective we don't really see um and you just hear about how lonely she was and how sad she was after his accident Frank had a really horrible accident that made him a quadriplegic um so it just is interesting because that's what sparked this movie but what's more interesting is that Frank has never read the book and she passed away from cancer uh, a few years ago and he still hasn't read it. And I initially was like, oh my gosh, all this judgment. But then you watch the rest of the documentary and there's one point where Claire starts reading out portions of the book to him and you can see him welling up. So it's almost this moment of like, this is like too much pain for them to relive. Um, but a lot of it speaks to her experience. Like after Frank got injured so severely like what she did to make sure he lived and then on the flip side you also hear just the devastation from his side of things when she passed like his teams were saying that he team members were saying that he was like it got to a point where he was just sleeping at the um factory and stuff because he didn't want to go back home so it's like it's super sad but it also highlights just the strength of women in this sport like you see claire who's just so purpose-driven did so much work and yes you know we didn't see her succeed in the way that she wants but we know that she always texts Georgie (laughs) to let him know he did a good job um but then also what it's like to be married to someone like this and um when they ended up winning the uh world championship I think it was a year after Frank's crash them meaning Williams um they actually brought her up to lift the trophy And they show that photo and you just see like this look of grit on her face because, you know, just especially watching this movie, you just know how much shit she went through to just make sure Frank lived. 
um, or not even that, make sure Frank lived, but then also before that, you know, having him gone all the time, having him, you know, do all the things that Formula One drivers do, which is being surrounded by tons of beautiful women and all that kind of stuff. So I thought it was really, really beautiful, but I thought it was also really sad. And like I said, I think that we should maybe do like what a mini book club episode or something where we talk about the book. Um, because I think it'd be really interesting to get her perspective and her words of how hard it was for her. Good God, that sounds like a sad story. I don't know if I could have made it through. <laughs> yeah, I had a hard time towards the end. Uh, I just want to wrap it with Frank is obviously still alive and doing well, um, as well as he can be. Claire did mention he's in constant pain because of his injury. Uh, Claire has obviously, you know, moved on in other ways from Formula One, but like I said, checks in with the team. And I think for both of them, my thinking is that they're both really happy to see Williams finally like get some just traction in the right direction. Um, and then, I mean, come on, they must've been so stoked to see that, that freaking one, two, three for the last race and having Georgie in third position. Like that's like all those things is so exciting. So I think that they're probably super great, but I'm hoping that as Caitlin and I, you know, dive into the world of Formula One that at one point or some point we get to like actually chat with Claire um, and get her perspective because it's ridiculous. Some of the questions people were asking her, like, how could you do this? And also be a woman. Like, what do you like to do? Like, that's womanly stuff. It's like, she's just a team principal. Hello. Like, I don't, just bizarre things. Anyways, that's my rant. Well, that seems like a really good movie. I might take a look at that one. You should. I really enjoyed it. I'm in a sad mood. I just can get more sad. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we're going to keep moving. So there are some films in the F1 motorsport world that actually made it up to cinema. Yeah. And I think like after talking with Guy, it's like, it's just a different like atmosphere being like a, a festival, kind of like more indie film versus like the big films or cinema. Yeah. Pretty much. So um kind of interesting that they got exposure like this so um I guess it depends on like the producer who you know who catches on to an idea and runs with it so um something not particularly f1 but <laughs> motorsport in regards to 24 hours of Le Mans um it's the 4B Ferrari movie that came out what like two years ago yeah and it was pretty popular from what I saw yeah, um, I, our friend Anisha actually told me to go see it, so I saw it, um, and I thought, like, it was a very good movie. Uh, what do I remember from it? Um, like, I think the difference between the ones we just saw on streaming and we just talked about mm-hmm. really are, the like, a lot more documentary style um, versus the ones in theaters definitely, like, revolve around a central storyline plot, right? Yeah. You're like build up to it like your standard cinematic movie. So this Ford v Ferrari was very much like that where the climax of the whole movie was the race um, in which Ford and the Ferrari drivers are racing each other in 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, But like everything leading up to it, they went into a lot of detail, but like again, fictional characters versus like based on real characters, but um, not the real people. And like obviously not the same situations as it was in life. Um, but it was very entertaining. Um, it, it had some big names in it too. So, yeah, it was a pretty stacked cast. Uh, I think there is Matt Damon. I know Christian Bale was in it for sure. 
I also know because, I mean, of course, the film kid, uh, they were nominated, I think, for three or four Oscars, um, but specifically around like sound editing and editing and things like that. So that's really great. I think Christian Bale was also nominated at the Golden Globes for his performance. So Caitlin's right. It was like pretty stacked. It seems pretty great. I have not seen it though. <laughs> Um, TDH, I watched it before I was in, into any kind of F1 or motorsports. So I'm just like semi trying to pay attention to what's happening with all the talk. But I think if we were to rewatch it now, a lot more would make sense. And actually, Shannon got bringing up the awards. Mm-hmm. There was, was it Senna that was nominated for BAFTAs? You and I talked about this yesterday. I think maybe it's one of the docuseries. So if it's one, it has to be the Senna one. I would, <laughs> my assumption. Right? Okay. Um, yeah, so I guess like it wasn't cinematic, but still big, big awards like this Ford v. Ferrari. And then of course, Shanika and I talked about Rush, which is like the big F1 mm-hmm. cinematic movie. Um, as soon as you put Chris Hemsworth into a movie, you will get a lot more attention from me. I'm just saying Oh, I just want to say that it did win actually best documentary at the BAFTAs, Senna. Okay, so more reason, you guys, to go watch it. It's pretty good. And then kind of tying into the cinematic universe. (laughs) Now, James Bond 007 is not F1 per se. (laughs) But the analogy between Aston Martin cars and 007 has been around for decades. Um, and we know Esther Martin is now back in Formula One. Hence our little tie-in, you guys. <laughs> um, but pretty much 007 had their premiere last night uh, for No Time to Die. And we had lots of representation from F1. Literally everyone was there. George Russell was there. I saw Pierre Gasly posted a selfie. I didn't see the red carpet photos of him. Um who else was there? Christian yeah. Horner. There we go. I'm forgetting someone. I was like, there was someone. Christian Horner. Lance Stroll was there. Right. With his super beautiful girlfriend. Sebastian Vettel, I didn't see pictures of. He's very private though. I feel like if he got invited, he would dress up, but just like go to the stuff inside. Not I walk think Lawrence Stroll was there too. He was. Yeah. Is he that was. his girlfriend or wife? Or she looks very young. Yeah, maybe. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't see that photo though. But yeah, so Aston Martin and James Bond, they have this huge partnership. But what's been interesting to see is like this marketing push, not just for the cars, but for Formula One. Um, was it a few weekends ago that they were branded That's with 007? Yeah, they were branded with 007. They've shot about a bunch of content with the Formula One vehicles. Um, the actors, James not James Bond, <laughs> Daniel Craig. Um, James Bond, though, you know? Yeah. Forever. Uh, I forget her last name. It's like Artin or something. They were both at the unveiling of the new car. I freaking love that girl. She's on um, Clash of the Titans and she's just like so bomb. Argentin? Argentin? Maybe. Um, but yeah, so there's just this huge push, which I think is so smart by whoever's running marketing for Aston Martin. But it's nice to see, I guess the worlds collide a little bit more because our biggest thing is like, I mean, obviously it's James Bond, which is a British spy film, but 
Uh, we want Formula One to be a bit more international, which I know is ironic, judging that's an international sport. But if you listen to our podcast, you know that literally no one in Canada <laughs> or everyone in Canada feels like they're the lone Formula One fan because there's really not that much penetration in the North American market. So by doing this, I think it will really help them do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, like I, I want to go see it. I bet you Shani wants to go see it. You guys should go see it. <laughs> I'm just saying. And our last thing that we were going to talk about to wrap this episode up is a question to both of us, which is, Caitlin, <laughs> what movie would you like to see made next? Let's all about F1. It can be a driver. It can be a moment. It can be whatever. I would love to see a documentary on Red Bull racing. <laughs> I want to see like from the inception of the idea of oh my god we have like we're selling red bull but let's like sell it via an f1 team i want to see it from that inception point yeah. and i want to see all the crazy shit they do they like <laughs> go on top of buildings and do donuts and they go in crazy places um and then i want them to go into like the current bigs peoples and like some of their history mm-hmm. i'm very curious that way um and kind of like where they want to go in the future of course they can throw in some like other cool stuff that red bull extremes do because i mean that's always cool but no i'm very interested because it's like i don't know you don't see coke trying to build an f1 team i know i told caitlin where i just think they're so brilliant at it is red bull i mean i'll probably not talk about this on podcast but probably put in a blog post on my website or something but red bull in itself the product they're trying to sell is an energy drink y'all but the thing is that they've they know who their target audience is which is young men who are in extreme sports so they've basically bought and sponsored and completely done everything possible to get into those markets now that you know we know red bull and associate them with those things so i guess their big thing is like red bull makes you fly and i think that motto opens it up big enough that they can do anything that's extreme and formula one racing is one extreme watching a guy drop from like the outer edges of space <laughs> into earth is another extreme um but i think that they've really nailed it in terms of marketing they're like content machines and i'm so impressed so caitlin i think that's a great pick um for me i'm curious to know more about <laughs> Fernando Alonso just because we are seeing him now in this like resurgence of this incredible career he's being really really solid and as someone that is new to Formula One and we know that there's like some history with his anger and like all this other stuff like I want that stuff to be documented and to figure out why he is the way he is but he's definitely someone that I am intrigued by but I also think if I could like not have to pick a driver, I think in general, Bernie Eccleston, Eccleston and just his sort of family and their foundation of building Formula One is the next, maybe not docu-series. Like I think a docu-series would be fun, but I think it'd also be funny to see someone play him. So I'm not sure. I could go either way. You know what? I also think like they need to do one on Lewis Hamilton pretty much because like he has like unique upbringing story and he is literally one of the most grand prix well yeah most grand prix and most world champions out of anyone so 
they really should be looking into do one on him just saying but um I think it's almost inevitable. That's why we didn't mention it, though. Yeah, exactly. And same with the Sebastian Vettel one. I think that's also inevitable. But Shanika and I keep seeing um, like teaser Instagram posts for like the Sebastian Vettel story, which is definitely, I don't think that's real. (laughs) (laughs) But people are just like teasing us because obviously algorithm knows we're interested in it. Yeah. And people want to see it, which I believe. So Netflix, if you're listening, you probably saw success with the Schumacher doc might be time to do one on Seb maybe they'll have one on everyone as soon as they buy the rights for F1 yeah and then (laughs) and then you'll have to get another streaming service (laughs) to launch everything else Formula One uh well I think that's like it for this episode uh we hope you enjoyed our little movie episode I guess of Formula One where we get to combine a bunch of worlds and talk about Formula One in a different way um and if you guys have thoughts about like how you want to see F1 portrayed in cinema going forward like let us know yeah and also with Caitlin saying that we have an email it's getcheckered at gmail.com we know people listening to us are not in Canada (laughs) so (laughs) just shoot us an email let us know what you think and uh if you don't want to do that you can also message us on tiktok instagram or twitter it's at get checkered on everything i also think on anchor if you just click the link in our bio you can actually leave us voice memos which i mean who knows Maybe, yeah. yeah depending on the opinion like we'll be happy to share it <laughs> on our podcast uh but other than that uh we'll see you in the next one which will be yes we'll have an episode out later this week for another weekly roundup because i'm pretty sure the turkey one isn't until october 8th or something yeah yeah and who knows maybe we'll do a weekly roundup reshoot the the money in formula one <laughs> and really yes. yeah. okay friends stay we'll let you go yeah bye, bye everyone bye